0: So what are you worth? I mean, really, what, what do you think your value is? How do you figure out what you're worth as a person? There's lots of ways to do this. If you're a professional athlete, uh, you might give the amount that you were last signed for. Uh, you know, with the NCAA um, having to acknowledge name, image, and likeness uh, contracts now, students are able to put their name out there and receive funds for who they are and for the sport that they happen to play. If you're a professional athlete, you might say that's my value. If you're a lawyer, you might talk about the number of cases that you've won or people that you've defended successfully or or maybe you're a doctor, you might talk about the number of successful surgeries or cases that you've cases of illness that you've helped bring healing to others of us might have other measures for our worth that have nothing to do with what we do, but maybe who we are. Maybe it's the number of likes and follows that you have on social media, the number, uh, the length of your snap, snap streak on Snapchat. It's hard for me to even say that, much less understand it, even though I hang out with college students all the time. There's value in that. The number of followers that you have on Instagram, or maybe the number of people who've listened to your podcast or read your blog. No matter what metric, though, that you choose to use, our valuation often has to do with a number. That person made a little more than me. They must be worth a little more. That person made a little less. Maybe they're worth a little little less. I've served longer than them, They've served a little less. I'm faster and they're slower, or I'm I'm better at this than than him, or or she's better at it than me. I work harder, whether we like it or not. We often place value on our own lives, especially by comparing our value to that of others. I don't know if you know much about grapes. My uncle, my uncle Robert. I used to grow muscadine grapes in his backyard, and occasionally he'd pick some of those grapes to make a little wine. Now, I don't like muscadine wine, but from my watching uh, of my Uncle Robert, I learned that you have to harvest grapes at just the right time. And, And what he told me was that grapes don't get any more ripe once you pluck them off the vine. So if you harvest a grape and you bring it into your house, it's not like a tomato that you can watch, you know, get a little more ripe or a banana that you can watch go from yellow to brown in 48 hours. Grapes don't do that. They just, they don't get any more ripe than they are. That's why the landowner in our parable this morning is going out to get workers because during the harvest, the grapes had to be picked picked quickly so they were consistent in quality so that you can make a consistent quality of wine. So the landowner landowner is out early in the morning to get workers because he had to start early in the day, usually at sunrise around 6 a.m. to get to work. That's the first hour of the day. Now, these laborers who contracted at the start of the day would have expected a day's wage for their work. And the wage for a day's work uh, in ancient Israel was a denarius. And that's not a lot of money, but it's enough to feed your family and take care of what you need to take care of today. So as the sun rises, the work of harvesting begins. But a few hours later, around 9 a.m., our landowner goes back out to hire more people and, and he goes out into the marketplace to find more people and he sees people just sort of standing around waiting and he invites them to come and work for him in the field. Now these workers they might have expected a little bit less than a full day's wage but the landowner says I'll pay you a fair wage come on. So they follow him out to the field and then the landowner repeats this process at noon and at 3 p.m. and later in the day at five o'clock it's the 11th hour of the day. He goes back out to, again, to find whoever is left over in the labor pool because he still has work to be done. And wouldn't you know it, there, standing on the corner, are a few more people. Why aren't you working? The landowner asks. We haven't found a job yet, they say. And he tells them to come and work for him with no promise for any wage at all. Now in those days, the law required that workers had to be paid on the, day that, that the same day that they worked. So every day there was a line to receive your daily wage, to receive your denarius. And so most of these people were living hand to mouth. And so even these people who, who arrived at 5 o'clock and only worked for one hour uh, would have stood in the line hoping to maybe just get enough to have a meal that night. But the interesting thing, the provocative thing in this story is that everyone gets the same pay. Everyone gets the same wage. Whether you you started at 5 o'clock in the afternoon or you started at 6 in the morning, everyone was paid the same amount regardless of what they've done regardless of how much they had toiled, regardless of how fast they were or how slow they were, how many, you know, rests they had to take during the work of the day, how many water breaks were required for them. They, everybody got paid the same. The ones who came last were paid first and received what the people around them or further back in the line from them deemed that they didn't deserve. These people who had come first were ecstatic. They received a full day's pay for just maybe an hour's worth of work. They hadn't really even gotten sweaty by that point. The people at the back of the line at that point began muttering, wait a minute, wait a minute, if you're paying them a denarius, maybe I'll get two denarii. Maybe I'll get three denarii. Don't we deserve more because we've been out here slaving away in this field all day? Even though they had agreed to work for a fair day's wage. Look how much work I did, they would have said. Look how fast I gathered the crops. Look at how hot it was today. You can imagine the grumbling going on and on and on. And, and at a certain point, when the grumbling had gone on long enough, the landowner pipes in. He jumps into the conversation and he answers one of them in the midst of their belly aching. And he says, am I being unfair to you, Friend? I love that it says friend there. Am I being unfair to you, friend? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Those words in verse 15 are the ones that ring in my ears when I hear this parable. Are you envious because I am generous? The landowner says, are you envious because I am generous? For the landowner, the people who worked in the field were valuable for what they helped accomplish. Every hand that gathered a grape was valuable. Every hand that filled a vat was of worth. Every soul that stepped foot onto his field that day was needed and was used and worked. The landowner wasn't judging them based on merit or aptitude or speed or SAT score. He wasn't judging them on the length of time they spent working, but instead for their part, however great or small, in completing the work Of the day. It didn't matter that some came at five. They had just as much a part in getting it done as everyone else. Do you realize that your worth to God has nothing to do with what you do? That your worth to God has nothing to do with how long you followed the way of Jesus or how long you've been a member of Pittman Park that your value has nothing to do with how many years of perfect attendance you've had at Sunday school or how strong or how handsome or how rich or how powerful or how popular you may happen to be your value doesn't have anything to do with any of those attributes. Your value comes from who you are to Christ and your participation, however great or small, in the work of His Kingdom. Your value comes from who you are in Christ. And your participation, however great or small, in His Kingdom. The landowner in this parable makes no distinction between his workers. They are all equally valued. They are all equally loved. And they are all equally blessed and equally paid at the end of the day. And the same is true for you and I. We are all equally valued, equally loved, and equally blessed by God. And when I say all, I mean all. Because we are the workers in God's fields. We are the children of God's promise. We are the heirs of God's kingdom, made in God's very own image and likeness. Your value has nothing to do with what you do or how long you've done it, but rather has everything to do with who you are in Christ. And no matter who you are, whether you've walked with God for 70 years or you've run from God for 70 years, God is in pursuit of you, calling you out, asking you to come and join in God's kingdom work. For me, the most important part and the most provocative part of this parable gets skipped over by most commentators and academics and, and even those who spend a lot of time studying this parable. The most important part to me is not who gets paid or when they get paid. The most important part to me is how often the landowner goes back and forth looking for help in his field. He goes out early in the morning and hires workers for the day. He goes out at nine. He goes out at noon. He goes out at three. He goes out at five to gather people off the streets. Everyone who would come and be a part of the work that has to be done. He not only invites, but he accepts Did this man have some reason to keep going back to the marketplace? We don't know. Did he know that the rains were coming and that his harvest might be ruined? We don't know. Did he have a a soft spot in his heart for the unemployed and underemployed? We don't know. We don't know, and the story doesn't say. All it says, and with great detail, is that this particular landowner used up a whole lot of gas getting back and forth between his field and the marketplace to gather more people in to do the work that needed to be done. Picking up anybody off the street who would agree to go to work for what's right. This provocative story is about God's generosity. And believe me, a a denarius in, in that day was not a generous amount of money. The generosity in this parable, is in the landowner's repeated, unrelenting call to come and work in his vineyard. The generosity is not in what is earned, but in the invitation. The man just wouldn't quit going back and forth to town. He just wouldn't quit calling. He wouldn't stop hiring, inviting, seeking, and offering. God's generosity to you and I is not in how much we are blessed, but in that we are invited to participate in God's kingdom and in the redemption of all creation. That's the generosity of God. That everyone's invited. That there's no soul who's not welcome to come and labor in God's field. You and I, we talk about justice all the time and doing what's fair. Jesus, in this parable and through this parable, says, listen, God's not fair. He invites everybody. Our notions of fairness and justice are thrown out of the window for kingdom ethics. Come and put your hand to the plow. Come and gather grapes from these vines. You are welcome here. Bishop Will Wilmon says here in this parable is a picture of a kingdom that's not structured on justice or what we deserve or what's fair or what's earned. We may structure our kingdoms that way or at least attempt to do so. But that's the way we do business. The way God does business is another matter altogether. Our statue of justice over the courthouse door is is a blindfolded woman with scales. Blind, dispassionate, impartiality, and balanced objectivity. That's what we call right. But God's right is not our right. A persistent, persistent, intrusive invitation, not dispassionate justice is the way that God's kingdom is structured. I want to read that last line one more time. Persistent, intrusive invitation, not dispassionate justice is the way God's kingdom is structured. So the last will be first. And the first will be last. And everyone will be paid. What is fair. This morning as we turn toward Holy Communion, I want to remind you again of the generosity of God, our God, who offered His own self for our salvation. God who paid our debts when we were bankrupt. God who gave us everything that we might be free from the bondage of sin and death. Friends, we don't follow a God who is a penny pincher or a miser but a generous God who values you for who you are and never stops inviting you to come and join Him in the work of His kingdom. Amen. Would you join me at the confession and pardon this morning? Glory to God. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so with your people on earth and all your company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of Your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Holy are You, and blessed is Your Son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of His suffering, death, and resurrection, You gave birth to Your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which He gave Himself up for us, He took bread, gave thanks to You, broke the bread, and gave it to His disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. When the supper was over, He took the cup, gave thanks to You, and gave it to His disciples, saying, Drink from this all of you, This is My blood of the New Covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me." And so, in remembrance of these Your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. and we feast at His heavenly banquet. Through Your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in Your holy church, all honor and glory is Yours, Almighty God, now and forever. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, let us pray the prayer that Christ taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done If you did not happen to have the opportunity to pick up a communion cup, they're available on the tables at the front and in the narthex of the sanctuary. Let's receive together. If you would, let's join in the prayer after communion. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, we give You thanks for this holy mystery in which You have given Yourself to us. Send Your Spirit that we might give ourselves for others in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.